0: Several months back when I was laying out this series, uh, actually it was before uh, uh, 2023 even started, uh, I laid it out, I knew that around this time we'd be in Romans 13, uh, where as you're reading through Romans, uh, Paul jumps into Romans 13 by uh, talking to the Christians in Rome on how to submit to governing authorities and talks about the importance of government. And knowing that we are 365 or so days away from an incredibly important election, and you can already feel the, the craziness uh, kind of building, it's already been cray cray, but it's just the craziness building, how people just lose their minds in election years, and how we've gotta be the foundation, a biblical foundation for, uh, for those around us. Uh, the truth is you're gonna build your life on something. Every one of you are gonna build your life on something. What are you gonna build your life upon? We believe as as parents, we believe as uh, men and women of God, the best foundation we could ever give our kids is to be great deciders, using the Word of God as the moral compass for every decision they make. That as Christ followers, the Word of God is our moral compass. And in these uh, cultural moments, just like Rome had, and Paul had to speak through the culture Uh, with the authority of Jesus, we are responsible to do the same. Let me do a quick test across our campuses before I hand it over to a friend of mine uh, to give you the fire hose today. You are in for a treat today. uh, As we kinda combine, uh, we, we combine government and the word of God and, uh oh, is the church getting political? Let me tell you, don't worry about the church getting political. The government is getting more and more religious. The government is getting into way more things that have to do with biblical things like gender, and marriage, and sexuality, and, and morality. And we're not about getting political today, it's about understanding the Bible. But let me do a real quick poll, real quick. How many of you know the name of your mom and dad? Like, uh, at least you think you do. Okay, uh, keep, keep, how many of you know the first name of your grandma and grandpa? How many of you know the first name of your great grandpa and grandma? Oh, it's dwindling just a little bit. How many of you know the name, first and last name uh, of your great-great-grandpa and grandma? Uh Uh-oh, do you even love your parents? Do you even love your heritage? Okay, if we don't even remember the first names of men and women that have made a huge, have a huge important part of our own heritage, how much more likely is it that through 250 years of a nation, how things can get lost from year to year, from generation to generation. How quickly we can forget and how quickly we need to remember our foundations. My friend today, David Barton from Wall Builders, uh, is going to share about the the very foundation of the Word of God and how it has carved out this nation. Uh, I invite you to grab your pen uh, you're, you, uh, like I said, are gonna drink from the fire hose. Um, I've had David before it's been always a joy and a treat. I first saw a video of his when I was a freshman in high school in government class at a Christian school. Then I had, he was a guest uh, lecturer uh, in our university. Had him several years ago here, and he has always delivered well. Lean in, open your eyes, open your heart uh, to hear what God wants to say, uh, and I am encourage you to like feed on the Word of God today. Will you help me welcome my friend, David Barton? Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it, bro. Guys, I want to start this morning with
1: Proverbs 10.22. Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. What you find from the scriptures, God's blessing is something that enriches your life. Now, as it turned out, I learned from a founding father, Benjamin Rush, that some of the greatest blessings that enrich our life are things we don't even notice. Uh, Benjamin Rush, signed the Declaration, out of the signer's Declaration 56, John Adams said that Benjamin Rush is one of the three most famous founding fathers. According to John Adams, he said it's George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. We don't even know the guy today. Now, Benjamin Rush, we're very blessed, our organization. We have about 120,000 original items from these guys back in the day. I've got lots of his writings, lots of his handwritten stuff. I have his prayer journal. He was a very strong, dedicated Christian man. Uh, He started the first Sunday school movement in America. He's just an amazing guy. But Benjamin Rush, in his prayer journal, he's going through, and being a good Christian, he's trying to thank God for all the blessings he he enjoys. And he's going through and he said, I thank God for this. and they all make sense, but then he got to some that just kind of made me scratch my head a little. He, he said, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs." Run that by me again. I'll point out, I just ran up the stairs and didn't fall, and nobody noticed that. It's a blessing that nobody noticed that. If you'd noticed it, it would been because I fell, and that's not a good deal. It's like when you drive to the store to get groceries and you don't have a wreck, you don't think about it. If you have a wreck on the way, then you think about it, All the things that don't happen to us are bigger blessings sometimes than things that do happen to us. And that's what he pointed out. And I think that no people on the face of the earth have more blessings to be thankful for that they take for granted than we do here in America. Uh, If you look at our Constitution, it's a great example. There's 193 nations today at the United Nations. So we're one of 193. But there have been nations for thousands of years. There's been thousands of nations over thousands of years. And if you go back and look at them, It's interesting. Cornell University Law School said, you know, for all these 5,800 years that we have, what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And as it turns out, over the course of history, the average constitution lasts 17 years. Now, what's significant is last September 17th, we celebrated 236 years. So the average is 17, and we just hit 236. We're so used to stability, we think it's normal, and it's not. Stability is not normal. Instability is what's normal. See, that's a blessing we take for granted. There's so many things we take for granted because we're just used to them. We we don't notice them. If they were to disappear, we would notice it, but because they're here and we have it all the time. And see, the same thing happens not only with that, but also with creativity. America represents only 4% of the world's population, but when you look at at creativity measured by copyrights, patent protections, uh, inventions, America's 4%, we produce more than 96% of the inventions in the world. As a people, we are surrounded by technology and blessings that other people don't have. We have it, so we assume everybody else has it. Not so, not, a, not at all. Matter of fact, even if you look at where we are with prosperity, our little 4% of the world's population produces 25% of the world's wealth. Now, we do a census every 10 years required by the Constitution, and in the most recent census, 2020, the results came out in 2021, We found out that if you live in poverty in America, and we don't want anyone living in poverty here, but if you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe, which is the second highest, wealthiest place on the face of the earth. Living in poverty in America, you have a higher lifestyle than middle class in Europe. See, this is why everybody in the world wants to come to America and be poor. If they can just be poor in America, they've elevated their lifestyle above every other nation. That's what we have at the southern border. So we have blessings that we take for granted, and this is just who we are as a people. And when you look at what we have, we call this American exceptionalism. That was a term given to us in 1831, and doesn't mean, look at us, we're exceptional, It means we're the exception, not the rule. Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman, wrote Democracy in America. He said, the condition of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it made me believe that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar position. So that's what he saw back in 1831. We're different from other nations, and we really are different. Now, why are we different? I I think George Washington put his finger on it. George Washington, after 45 years of public service, he retired in 1796. 45 years, he gave his farewell address. This is considered the most significant political speech ever given by any president. If you were in schools prior to World War II, you would have studied this seriously because this is the guideline. This is the secret sauce. This is the formula that that made America great. And he's just summing it up and he says, guys, if we're gonna stay on track, here's what we have to do. And he gave about a dozen warnings in this. And so it was that in previous generations, we took a written exam on Washington's farewell address once a year for the first eight years of school. It was that significant, that important. And Washington talks about, well, you see, he says, of all the habits, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity. And by the way, I think the term political prosperity is an interesting term, particularly given where we are today. We don't have much political prosperity. We've got a lot of political polarization. We've got a lot of weaponization against each other. We've got a lot of canceling each other. We don't have much political prosperity. Things aren't prosperous. They're they're more divisive than we've seen at any point in anybody's lifetime that's in this room. But he said of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, he said religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now, we've been taught for two generations that Christians don't get involved in politics. We stay out of No, no, he says, if you want your politics to work well, the things you will not separate from politics are religion and morality. And now we're being told, no, no, no. this is a secular nation. Christian nationalists, you Christians shouldn't be getting involved in stuff. That's wrong. No, that's what makes the system work well, is having Christians involved, religion and morality. And he went a step further. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. Now, he knows a patriot when he sees one. He had him at Valley Forge, he had him eight years in the revolution. He says, guys, I'm just telling you, you cannot call yourself a patriot if you try to separate religion and morality from political life. Think about how many people today would not be patriots in any previous generation because they want to secularize education. They want to secularize the public school. They want to take religion and morality out of all these areas. We used to know that you would not put up with that in America. But we do put up with it now because we don't know who we are as a people. We, we, we don't know our, our history and our heritage. And it's striking. He talks about religion and morality. When you look at religion and morality, that's what pro- produces political prosperity. Well, when you look at where we are today, a great, there are a lot of people who do a, lo- a lot of measurements. I'm a close friend with George Barnum. We do a lot of work together. George a great pollster. And the American Bible Society also does a lot of polling work on what is the religious and moral condition people in America today. And the American Bible Society, surprisingly to many people, was started in 1816 by our founding fathers. Signers of the Constitution, justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, vice presidents of the United States, they're the ones who started the American Bible Society. It was political people who started the Bible Society. That's the largest Bible Society in the world. It gives out tens of millions of Bibles every year. So it started back in 1816. But what they do is every year they do a study on the state of the Bible. So if you look at the state of the Bible for 2022, What you find out in 2022, and and by the way, just overall trending, Bible reading in America has been dropping for several generations, steadily, slowly going down, generation by generation. In 2022, in that one year, we took a nosedive. We lost 25 million Americans who no longer read the Bible at all. Now, if political prosperity is based on religion and morality, and you stop reading the Bible, that's less religion and morality, which is gonna mean less political prosperity. So we lost 25 million in one year. Then when you look at the results of this year's study, it took another dive this year. This year we lost another three million. So in the last two years alone, we've lost 28 million Americans that no longer crack the book at all. They don't even look on the inside to see what's there. So this is, what part, this is partially, in part, what undermines political prosperity. This is why we are such a polarized, divided society. We don't even understand the foundations anymore of what made us who we are. So the biblical literacy we suffer right now is something that Washington talked about. If you, You've got to have religion morality to have political prosperity. But I want to compare then and now. In other words, I want to just back up a generation or two. Let me take you back to President Franklin Roosevelt. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, by his own definition, is a liberal progressive Democrat. That's his definition. So that's what he called himself back then. Look what the president was saying just a couple generations ago. He says, in the formative days of the republic, the directing influence, the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. He said, guys, you cannot read, our, just two generations ago, you cannot read American history and not see that the Bible is what founded America. You can today. It's super easy today. As a matter of fact, if you do what I'm saying right now, you'll get called all sorts of names. If you doubt that, just look me up on Wikipedia. Actually, don't do that. I don't even like myself when I see Wikipedia. I get millions spent against me every year for just repeating what these guys said just a couple generations ago. So he says, guys, you, you can't read American history, not see what the Bible did with American history, And let me just kind of develop that for a minute, because if you take the concept, okay, the the constitution that we have, the foundation that we have, what was the source of its ideas? Because if it lasted 236 years and the average is only 17 years, they must have had some different ideas in there from somewhere. Um, Where'd they get those ideas? Well, actually, interestingly, University of Houston said, we'd like to know that. So University of Houston said, we think that if we take the writings of those who wrote the Constitution, the writings of of the Founding Fathers, Constitutional Convention. In that era, if we take the founding writings, and if we read their writings and see who they quoted, we'll know where they got the ideas they put in the Constitution. And that's a pretty smart idea. If I followed you around all day and and listened to you, at the end of the day, I could say, here's who you quoted today. I would know who's important to you by who you quote. So what they did was they collected 15,000 writings out of that era. They went through those writings. They found 3,154 direct quotes, and then they said, now, let's take the quotes back to their original source and see where they got their ideas. It took them 10 years to do it, but the end of 10 years, they had documented all back to original sources. They reported it in this book, The Origins of American Constitutionalism, great book to read if you want to know more about where we came from. So when they got back, they found, well, the single most cited individual, was Baron Charles Montesquieu. Charles Montesquieu in 1750, he wrote a two volume set called Spirit of the Laws. And that's particularly what they quoted in making separation of powers, checks and balances. A lot of governments have three branches. That's Isaiah 33, 22. Not many of them have checks and balances, separation of powers. We really kind of started that. And our founding fathers talked about Montesquieu as being a great source of that. Then the second most cited individual was, was uh, Judge William Blackstone. He wrote the four-volume set called Commentaries on the Laws. We use that a lot. Thomas Jefferson said that American attorneys read Blackstone's commentaries in the same way Muslims read the Koran. I mean, these guys just studied it and stayed in it. The third most cited individual was John Locke, the two treatises of government. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But they found the single most cited source by the Founding Fathers was was the Bible. 34% of all their quotes came from the Bible. Now, they quoted the Bible. 12 times more often they quoted Locke, and they quoted the Bible four times more often than they did Montesquieu and Blackstone. The single most cited source in the founding of America with the unique ideas we had was the Bible. That would not happen likely today if we had a convention today of 55 individuals from America. The Bible's probably not gonna be cited much at all, but that was far and away the source that they cited back then. So when you look at the source of ideas, we take it back to the Bible, and the Bible is the source of those ideas, and so that's why the president's saying, hey, guys, in the formative days of the republic, it's conspicuous what the Bible did. Well, it is to previous generations who look at it. This is not the way we teach schools today. He continued. He said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible's occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. Like what? Let me take something like due process. Due process, that's the fourth through the eighth amendments of the Bill of Rights. This is where you get the right to confront your accuser. You get the right to, uh, to speak in your own defense. You get the right to compel witnesses. All that is, is there. That's called due process of rights, fourth through the eighth amendment. It's interesting, if you happen to practice federal law, this is one of your law books. It's called Federal Practice and Procedure. I've been involved in 13 cases in the US Supreme Court. And if you practice federal law, this is a set of law books that goes from here, out the door, and across the parking lot. It's a big set of federal law books. Volume 30 has 20 pages on how the Bible is what shaped the due process clauses in the Bill of Rights. According to this federal law book, the right to confront your accuser came out of John 8.10. The right to compel witnesses in your behalf comes out of Proverbs 18.17. The right to speak in your own defense is Acts 22.1. See, we think, oh, government, secular law. No, no, no. The reason we're unique is because we took biblical ideas and put them into all of these places and all the, and see, even federal law books today acknowledge that, although professors and everybody else said, no, 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 it's secular. They were secular, that's what's made us great, not so. Let me go to another president, President Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our civic and social life, notice he did not say our spiritual life. He said, the Bible is so much a part of our civic and our social life, He said it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. If you take the Bible out of our civic and social life, you wouldn't recognize America. Again, most Americans have no clue how the Bible is shaped, but let me give you some more examples. If you take, for example, the economic system that we have, the free enterprise system, now, if you study economics, you know there's different types of economic systems. America has adopted the free market system. We adopted that in 1627. We beat all of Europe. We got into the free market before anybody else in the last 1,000 years. And you'll find historically, and it started with the pilgrims in 1627, five Bible verses created. 1 Timothy 5:8, Second 2 Thessalonians 3:10, teachings that Jesus gave on economics in Matthew 20, Matthew 25, and Luke 19. Those five teachings started the free market system. And when we went to the free market system, according to the records back then, the Pilgrim's records, our productivity increased sevenfold over what it had been prior to the free market system. So he's saying, guys, you, you, you can't even recognize our system if you take the Bible out. So if you take the free market system out of America, we're not the same nation. We're not prosperous. We don't have the creativity. All of that goes away. It comes from the Bible. In the same way, we have what's called a Republican form of government. Despite the fact that we're told we need to save the democracy, no, we don't. That's a really bad idea. The Bible gives seven, Bible illustrates seven different forms of government. Our founding fathers went through that. You read their writings, they said, you know, the one that we think is the best form of government in the Bible is the Republican form of government, which is why in the Constitution, Article 4, Section 4 says, you cannot be anything other than a republic constitution for- forbids us from becoming a democracy. We can't. That, a democracy is different from a republic. We have to be we pledge allegiance to the Republic of the United States, not the Democracy of the United States. They're very different governments. And the founding fathers pointed the Bible as reason they didn't want democracy. They said democracy is worse than a dictatorship. It's the most tyrannical form of government. They chose a republican form of government, which is why they put it in the Constitution, and that's based Exodus 1821. Deuteronomy 1, 15 and 16, and Deuteronomy 16, 18. We get to choose our leaders, elect our leaders at the local, county, state, and federal level. That is a Republican form of government where the people elect their leaders. See, a democracy is not that. A democracy is the people vote on everything that comes along. That's a bad form of government. If you doubt that, just look at Jesus. When Jesus came riding in Jerusalem, all the people were saying, hey, make him king, make him king. A weak leader was saying, crucify the bum. We want rabbis. A democracy goes back and forth on feelings. They're motivated by whatever the passions are at the time. A republic is a very slow-moving form of government, which means you have to get rid of your feelings and start using your brain, and that's why we elect leaders for a period of time, because you can't have that passion overtake things. So these these come out of the Bible. We don't know that today, generally. We don't teach this in government class, but we used to. Then Ulysses S. Grant. And Ulysses S. Grant, what? during the Civil War. He was Commander-in-Chief of the Union forces, but he's president in 1876. Now remember, we did the Declaration of Independence in 1776. He's president on the 100th anniversary of America. He came out with this card, and it says 1776, 1876. It says Centennial right there in the middle. So this is the 100th anniversary of America, and it says, message of President Grant to the children and youth of the United States. So what's the message of the president to the kids in America? This is what he says. He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. He says, to the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our God in the future. Righteousness exalts a nation sends sins reproach any people. The president of the United States is telling kids, you need to stay in the Bible. This is the only thing that will keep America on track. This is the president? Uh, What do you think happens today if any president says this to kids today? I mean, they're attacking us for being Christian nationalists just because we say Christians should be involved in in civil affairs. This is our history. This is where we had been. And it's significant when you look at at Zachary Taylor, president. he, He was a war hero. His nickname was Old Rough and Ready. Zachary Taylor, again, the president speaking, he says, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone he says, it is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Again, he did not say faith. He said, the Bible is indispensable to our institutions. He continued, he said, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I wish that all of our people were brought up and influenced that holy book. Best school book? That's unconstitutional. You can't have a Bible in schools. That's where we are now. We forget. Well, you know, I love what Jeremy said earlier. Do you know your great-great-grandparents? Generally not. See, we don't even know our own history. We don't even know where we've come from. We think the way it is today is the way it's always been. It's not. You go back and look just at presidents of the United States. We're not talking preachers. We're not talking Christian activists. We're talking political leaders. Presidents said the Bible is the basis. This is what you have to have. Now, Benjamin Rush talked about him earlier. He's known as the father of public schools under the Constitution. He's the greatest doctor in in medical history. He's called the father of American medicine. He started the first Bible society. He started the first abolition society. But he also started five universities. Three of them still go today. And he's the father of public schools under the Constitution. In 1791, he wrote this piece, and he gave a dozen reasons that America would never take the Bible out of its public schools, a dozen reasons we would always keep the Bible in public schools in America well, if you want the Bible, go have a Christian school or private school. We don't do that in public school. Yeah, we did. That's exactly what we did in public schools, and that's exactly the way it was started. Significantly, this is New Jersey. I could have chosen any state because we've got all these records. I just want to show you what public schools in New Jersey were doing in in 1816. I could have chosen Pennsylvania or New York or any of the states back then, but I just chose, and I've got the other states. Let me show you this one. Out of New Jersey, This is the State Board of Education giving the report on first and second graders in New Jersey. They call it first and second classes is what they call it, but we call it first and second graders. And so this is what it says in New Jersey. This is the annual report. All the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, and several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. Public schools, first and second, and by the way, what's the text of the preceding Sabbath? Really simple whatever Jeremy spoke about last Sunday, we're going to memorize all those verses during the week at school. So the text of Sabbath, whatever the preceding Sabbath, whatever was covered in church, that's what we're going to... So this is what public schools are doing in 1816. And they did point out that they had one kid that was a little sharper than others. You know how those are. You always got a kid that's like that. And so they got one kid sharper than others. And it says, one of the scholars has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 psalms together with the 119th psalm. A second grader has memorized the Gospel of John and the first 30 Psalms and the 119th Psalm in public schools in New Jersey? Yeah, but he's a smart kid. Not everybody did that. It says the majority have committed to memory the Gospel of John. All the first and second graders memorized the Gospel of John in public schools in New Jersey. I don't know that I've met an adult that's memorized the Gospel of John, much less a second grader, and that was common for the public schools, and again, go back to the records, you'll find this all the way up until we had a change. And by the way, 1844, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case called Vidal versus Gerard's Executors. In that case, in 1844, in an 8 0 unanimous decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said, wait a minute. If you're a public school, if you get government funding, you are going to teach the Bible to schools. We won't have a government school that won't teach the Bible unanimous 8-0 decision, and they quoted the Founding Fathers to show why that was to be done. Now, this, and, and, and you know, we've got the records of that case, it doesn't matter, you can go to the law library, you can go online and look up this case, Vidal versus Gerard's executors. 8-0 decision that you keep the Bible in public schools. See, what we're used to is the change that occurred, and that change occurred in 1963. Two cases, Abbott and Shemp, and Murray Curlett, in which the Supreme Court said, hey, we're not doing this Bible stuff anymore. We're, we're progressives. And by the way, being progressive means we progress past traditions and history. We don't care what tradition history is. We've progressed past that. And so that's why being a progressive means never having to say you're sorry because you never look back to measure whether what you did worked. And it doesn't work. The morality that they had in the 60s didn't work out, but they're trying to make it worse in the, in the 2020s. I mean... Progressives are always wanting to change things instead of having history and tradition. You don't need to study history, you don't need to study tradition. Do you know that this year we, we have a legislative network, we have about a thousand state legislators in our network. They're Christians, they're from all 50 states, they're solid guys. But we found that in a number of states this year, and, and states all have periods of time in which they redo their history standards, their English standards, their, their math standards, et cetera. Texas every 14 years, I think. But a number of states you're sure, like Minnesota, like Louisiana, others, they said for the next 10 years in history, they're not going to teach the American Revolution, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, or the Holocaust. They're just taking out all history for the next 10 years. So all kids going through school for the next 10 years will have no clue of any kind of history of America for the last 250 years. we we'll just take it all out. So that's what progressives do. We don't need history. Let's just move on past that. Well, that's what we did with the Bible. and. Benjamin Rush, way long ago, because he understood the nature and character of man, which does not change over time. We do not evolve. We are the same and we are predictable. He says, the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. He said, if you stop reading the Bible in the schools, you're gonna stop reading it for the rest of your life because you need that early training on reading it and having that education of getting the Bible in the schools. And that's literally what we've seen. So we looked at the American Bible Society reports what they found, now, they were looking at all people in the nation, but when you look at just Christians, only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. Jesus said we should pray for daily bread. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but you need daily bread. We should be in God's Word every day, but only 9% of Christians are. See, we're becoming a biblically illiterate people, even as Christian people, we don't know the Bible in the way that, say, those New Jersey first and second graders knew it just, you know, back 200 years ago. So back to Founding Fathers, John Quincy Adams, president of the United States, sixth president, he actually did a book showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. So the President of the United States does a book for 10-year-olds. Guys, you need to read the Bible from cover to cover once a year. And if you don't read the Bible from cover to cover once a year, let me challenge you to do that. that. That is an old traditional American practice, but it's very important to, to know God's Word. And if you go through it year by year, you're not going to find that you're reading the same book every time because you'll see new stuff every time you go through it. It's like a new book every time you cover that thing. doesn't matter how many times you read it, you're going to find new stuff every time. He said... No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. He says, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And that was the practice of the founding fathers. That was the practice we had in the schools as well. He says, my customers read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from bed. He said, it employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the the most suitable manner of beginning the day. He says, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. Ten-year-olds listen up, because he's talking right in 10 Ten-year-olds listen up. Here's how I want to recommend that you read the Bible. He said, when I read the Bible, here's how I read it. I read four to five chapters every day. And by the way, if you want to read through the Bible cover to cover once a year, you don't have to read four to five chapters. You read 3.2 chapters a day. It Takes you about 15 minutes. There's now so many apps you can have it actually read the Bible to you or brushing your teeth, getting ready in the morning. But going through the Bible is not a hard process. He would spend an hour in it because he's making notes like crazy. I mean, his diary is amazing. He keeps all the notes on what God's showing him. But just going through the Bible, 3.2 chapters a day, he said, but I, I do 45 chapters. He says, I've always endeavored to read it, with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. He says, that is, with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom, my advance in wisdom and virtue. When I read the Bible, I don't read it as a devotional book to be inspired. I look for something that's practical. I want to contribute to my wisdom, to my virtue. I'm looking for things to apply. When I go through, I'm always looking. And so that biblical application is what they saw back then, and that's what they applied to so many things. And, you know, I could go through and show you how the Bible affected science, how it affected government, how it affected education, how it affected every, every different area, because history is real clear on that. But when you read the Bible and going through as he did, How about today? What do we get when we read the Bible today? Well, if we read the Bible the way they did, looking to apply it, like to the Bill of Rights or to an economic system or to a form of government, if we did, then all of these issues that are popping up on the screen, I specifically chose those issues because they've all been in the news in the last 24 months, and the Bible specifically addresses everyone. Really? What's the Bible say about minimum wage? You should say, hey, Jesus has a teaching on that in Matthew 20. What's the Bible say about things like the capital gains tax? Well, that's easy. Jesus has two teachings on that, Luke 19 Matthew 25. All this stuff is addressed in the Bible. We should be able to take the Bible and apply it to everything. and that's he said, that's the way I read the Bible. I always read the Bible looking for how it applies to everything going on around me. And so specifically, that's what needs to happen. But now, the polling from just, Two weeks ago, was with George Barnard just finished the polling, only 4% of Americans have a Biblical worldview. Only 4% of Americans can put a Bible verse to what's going on in the culture around us. So we need to get practical about God's Word in the way that we had been. This is what we did in schools for, but as Benjamin Rush said, if you don't read the Bible in schools, you're not likely to read it the rest of your life either. We got to get back to really getting grounded intentionally. It'll take a deliberate effort to do that. So biblical illiteracy is now higher than it's ever been in our nation's history. And what that does is that affects the way we see God's institutions. Um, We know that God created three institutions. We know family, Genesis 1, 2, 3. God made Adam, made Eve, put them together. They had children. That's a family. God blessed that, created that. And the more biblical you are, the more you understand what a family is. The more secular you are, the less you understand what a family is. So we have all sorts of definitions, even genders. You know, just a generation ago, nobody debated the fact there's two genders. Now, we're not sure how many there are. Well, actually, we are. If you happen to live in Europe, um, BBC has just gone through a training from um, from Global Butterflies. There's 150 different genders. Now, at least in America, we're not that crazy. We only think there's 81 genders. Our helpful professors have told us 81 and said, we've lost our minds. All you need to do is walk out on a ranch somewhere. I can put you behind my cattle herd on my ranch and Every one of you can accurately identify how many genders I have in that cattle herd, and it won't be a hard thing to do. It's really easy to tell, and it won't be 81 genders. There's only going to be two genders in that cattle herd. We've lost our brains on this. So what happens is, and seeing these, these institutions, God created the institution of family. God also created the civil government. Genesis 9:6. After you had Cain kill Abel, and the whole world went downhill, and you had the rape and the murder and the pillage, and God says, "Okay." Let's just wipe them out and start again. And so he saves Noah and his family. When Noah gets off the ark, in Genesis 9, 6, God says to Noah, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. That's capital punishment. That's the first civil law. Hebrew scholars say that's the beginning of what are called the Noahide laws. God gave Noah seven different laws, and that's civil government. God said it right in front. We're not gonna have this murder stuff anymore. If somebody murders, they're to be taken out. Now, that was God's law, but that's civil government. That's not the role of the church. That's not the role of the individual. That's the role of civil government. And that's where we know government came from God. And throughout the rest of the Bible, there's all these verses on civil government. And in the same way, we know that the church is God's institution. Now, we don't go back to the Old Testament for that, although there's types and shadows in Genesis and Exodus. God says, Look, I want my people in a congregation, I want the congregation coming to the temple and worshiping. Okay, we call that the church. Old Testament didn't have church, but that's the type and shadow. So we know these are God's institutions. God created these institutions. And interestingly, Christians today know less about government than the other two, because that's secular, we don't do that. Yes, we do, that's God's institution, just as much as the family or church is. And significantly, if you look at John Locke, I mentioned him earlier, one of the three most cited individuals. He's the guy who did the two treatises of government. Now, Richard Henry Lee is one of the 56 signers of the Declaration. And Richard Henry Lee made the motion that we separate from Great Britain, made the motion that led to the Declaration of Independence. So he's the guy behind the Declaration. And he said the Declaration was, quote, copied from Locke's two treatises of government. Oh, wow, that's significant. We wrote the Declaration based on Locke's two treatises. And when you read Locke's two treatises, and it's, you can get a copy today. It's less than an inch thick, less than 400 pages long. It references the Bible over 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. So we've been told government's secular? Then how come there's more than 1,500 verses in that book alone that reference the Bible and civil government? Government's not secular. That's God's institution. It's not secular any more than family or the church is. It's just that we've been talked out of being involved in that area. We, we, we're told we shouldn't be involved there. So. When you look at God's three institutions, we've stayed out of government. We've got to get back in that area as well as all the others. And Benjamin Rush, he said, and we've already talked about his father public schools under the Constitution. This is the piece he did in 1790. This is the piece he did before that piece on a dozen reasons would never take the Bible out of schools. He says, all right, last year we were 13 different nations. This year we're one nation with 13 states what do we need to be teaching in our schools if we're gonna stay a unified nation? If we're gonna stay a nation that's, that's unified because we've been 13 nations, if we're gonna stay unified, what do we have to do? And he says, well, the way to do that is, is what we teach in our schools. And so he went through and laid out on the mode of education proper in a Republic, our brand new Republic, what do you want education to do? He said, the purpose of public education is threefold. He said, we all have public schools. He said, the number one purpose of public education is to teach students to love and serve God. He said that's the number one purpose. And that's why you saw all those Supreme Court cases saying, hey, if you don't teach the bottom, if you're a government funded school, you're gonna teach the bottom of the school. I mean, we believe that. We believe that God was the basis of, of everything that kept us together as a country. He said the number two purpose for public education is to teach students to love and serve God. And number two is to teach students to love and serve their country. He said, the number three purpose of public education is to teach students to love and serve their family. Notice the order. God, country, and family. Nearly everybody I know today said, no, no, no. It should be God and family and then country, because family's so much more important. And he said, no, you're wrong. It should be God, it should be country, and it should be family. Because he said, if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy to your family which is exactly what we're finding now. I mean, look at what's happening across the nation with the takeover of school boards and what's in libraries, what we're fighting here in Texas with library stuff, even the rural areas. There's 300 books. In, In most urban areas, they have 300 pornographic books to take out of the library. In most rural areas, it averages 75 books, even in the rural areas. So even in the more Christian areas of the state, it's still not great. But see, that's what it is. Once you lose control of your country, it becomes an enemy to the family, which is what it's been for the last generation or two. So this is why we have to be involved in the government side as well, because otherwise it becomes the enemy to everything we believe. So I'll close with this challenge. This challenge comes from Reverend Matthias Burnett. Matthias Burnett was a famous minister back in the American founding, and he talked about the fact that we're accountable to God for what happens, not only with our life, but what happens around us. Um, it's interesting, he said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. Now, significantly, we know we will account to God. If scriptures are really clear, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, we'll give account for every word we've spoken. Uh, we're told in, in 1 Corinthians 4, we'll give account for every thought we've had. We, we know how to Hebrews 4, we'll give account for every action we've done. We know there's the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Deeds, and we know all that's recorded in Revelation, and we stand, at judgment, will account for all of that. But he said, you'll count to God and to posterity. And that's an interesting thought, accounting to posterity. He continued, he says, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. Hadn't thought of that, that in that sense before, but if you back up just a generation, back, back up to World War II, what was the culture like in World War II? Is it the same as the culture today? Nope. We still had God all over everything. I will emphasize again, Franklin Roosevelt was a liberal, progressive Democrat. You can't find a liberal, progressive Democrat today that would come anywhere close to saying the Bible should be part of what we did. Look how much America shifted in a relatively short period of time. Nobody back then, I don't care what party you're with, nobody disputed the Bible was the book, that everything had to be built on both parties agreed with that, not now. We're polarizing. Even one party, the, the Republican party, can't decide whether it wants Christians or not. I mean, we've gone so far in a crazy direction. So that's happened in a generation or so. Our, gener- our kids look at us and say, man, when you were, had white hair like I had, it was whole different. How come you guys lost it and gave it to us in such a crazy situation? And that's not a good thing to be asked in eternity. Is to answer to posterity as well as to God, and posterity to say, "Why don't you give this away?" See, "We have to be engaged. We have to be involved as Christians. We can't just stand on the sideline." Um, I'll close with the final thought, and we, we know that heaven and hell are real places. We know the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. We know that He is the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except Him. We know that hell is a real place. Revelation 21:8 tells us hell is a real place. It says there's a lake of fire and brimstone. It also tells us who goes into hell. And it goes through the the whoremongers, and adulterers, and the liars, and the murderers, and the perjurers, all these bad people, except at the top of Revelation 21.8, it starts with a category that really struck me recently. It says, the cowardly and the fearful. That's the first category. Everybody else goes to hell for what they did. The cowardly and the fearful went to hell for what they didn't do. They didn't speak out, they didn't have a voice, they didn't have a backbone. The polling we do, we find now that 77% of Christians self-censure themselves because they don't wanna create a controversy by speaking the truth in a culture that doesn't wanna hear truth. We can't be cowards. We gotta step up and say, hey, this, there are two genders. I don't care what you think, They're, that's gonna start to cre- create controversy, that's right. But you have to speak the truth. You can't be a coward and can't be fearful and back away. And that's part of the next generation. It's the only way you preserve things for the next generation. So we have an accountability. And so my challenge to you is get in God's word in a practical way. If you read God's word every day, good. Now start looking for what does it say about economics? What does it say about education? What does it say about government? What does it say about all these different areas? Because it deals with every one of them. We've got to have biblically oriented worldview people and that will make a difference. If this is of interest to you, uh, you can go to wallbuilders.com. We've got all sorts of materials that go through early American history based on all these original documents I've shown you this morning. Founders Bible actually shows you the Bible verses they use to create the aspects of our government. Um, separation of powers, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, and James Madison all said, Jeremiah 30 verse 9 is where we got the separation of powers between our three branches. It's a very practical book. So that's a way of finding out how practical it is. God bless you guys, thanks for letting me share. Jeremy.
0: I was really careful to walk up those stairs without falling. Um, So, that's a lot. Um, And wisdom helps us know how to apply those things at the right time. Paul personifies wisdom in Corinthians um, when he talks about Jesus. If you can lean into Jesus, he's gonna give you the wisdom to understand. There's a lot of things you can build your life on. Uh, There's a lot of things you are building your life on. Timber Creek, we want the word of God to be moral compass for every decision we make. Let's start there. With all that we could unpack today, with everything that you've heard today, one place for you to immediately apply is, do I allow the word of God to inform my decision-making? Do, do, do I see uh, my life and country and everything, politics, and then I see the word of God out here? Or do I start with the lens of the word of God and let the word of God then determine what I'm going to see, how I see, this is called a biblical worldview. Chances are that tomorrow we won't have the Bible back in public schools, Um, but you can have the Bible back in your home. You can't have the Bible back in your own heart. You can begin to lay that foundation. Josiah was eight years old, a king who reigned in Israel for 31 years. And even in Israel, there came a moment they were remodeling the temple. They said, you gotta check this out, we found this. They had lost it. They had lost the scrolls. They had lost the word of God. And they found it and it was so precious to them. That Josiah said, let's stand and we're gonna read this and we're gonna listen to this and we are going to let this dictate. And I'm gonna, and he was one of the greatest rulers that Israel ever had and he started it at eight. That scares me to death to think that my 15 year old son would be a king. And yet we're one generation away from families not even knowing or understanding who God is what he's done, start with your family, start with you, get involved, get engaged, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity for us to uh, dive deep into not only your word, but into heritage and American history. God, I pray that we would not just be hearers today. We would, this may spark, Lord, a, a desire for us to do our own research and, to, and to, to take a deeper dive and a better understanding, a different understanding, way, way beyond political preferences and partisan politics. God, may we truly align ourselves first with you. God first, everything else after that. Lord, we pray over our country. Lord, we we do pray that uh, like sin is corruption to every, every person, but righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. And Lord, we pray that there would be a stirring up of rightness in us that comes from you and only you that would exalt this nation, Lord, starting from you first everything else after that. We seek your kingdom first. All the other things are added. May that be our heart's cry for us, our family, our family in this nation, those around the world. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody say amen.